0: All right, turn in your Bibles, Genesis chapter 1. We're starting a new series on shame this morning. Uh, it'll be a four-week series. Me and Pastor Kai will go back and forth over the next four weeks, diving into a topic that I believe is very crucial. And it's, it's interesting because over the last several months, I've been diving more into this topic of shame to prepare for the sermon series. And so, so here, here's what I'll tell you. Like in, in 12 years of pastoral and in counseling ministry, this is a topic that I have taught on numerous times. Um, I have counseled on this topic more times than I could even count. It's, it's been something that I've consistently navigated. But I, what I would say is that the, the more that I've taught on or the more that I've counseled this topic, the more that as a pastor, as a minister of the gospel, that I see its far-reaching implications on all of humanity. That there is, what I would venture to guess by the end of this sermon, that you will see that there's not a man or woman in this room, not a child in this room, that shame skips over, that it touches every person. But studying it for the last several months, I've, my eyes have been opened to some of the profound, far-reaching implications of shame that I had never considered And so I I think we're in danger of some things that we need to be aware of, especially in the West, because we're a Western mindset here where we live. And in the West, there's some things that we don't understand about the far-reaching pursuits of the gospel of Jesus Christ in light of shame. And and I'm convinced that Satan uses this blind spot, this lack of knowledge, or this hidden part of our lives to keep God's people bound up to keep us from walking in the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I'm gonna start, before we get into Genesis, by defining shame. And I'm gonna give three different definitions for shame and they're kind of across the spectrum. I'm gonna give a definition from a researcher who's a secularist. I'm gonna give a definition from an Old Testament expert and I'm gonna give a definition from a neuro, um, a, brilliant, a brilliant biblical counselor who has his PhD in neuropsychology. And here's the first definition. You'll see it on the screen. This is from the secularist, the research expert. It says this, that shame is, The intensely painful feeling or experience of believing we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love. Here's the second definition. This is from an Old Testament scholar. He's a a brilliant mind. He says this, shame is the sense of unease with yourself at the heart of your being. We know there is something wrong with us, but we cannot admit it and or identify it. And then here's the third one from a biblical counselor who has his PhD in neuropsychiatry. He says this, shame is the deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something you did, something done to you, or something associated with you. It leaves you feeling exposed and humiliated. So when I bring up the topic of shame, I think historically, even in counseling settings, when I've breached the topic of shame with a person, um, I've, I've asked a person to consider shame in their life, and, and more often than not, unless they have some substantial abuse in their past, they would say, well, I don't really deal with shame today, but based off of those three definitions, anybody in the room comfortable in saying they've never experienced shame or aren't currently experiencing shame in their life? And I bet if we showed a show of hands nearly every hand in the room would be raised that at some point on some level to some degree you have sat under the weight of feeling and this is kind of the language I'm going to use on the outside looking in and you know what it feels like to be on the inside because you were once there but for whatever reason either because of a choice you made or something done to you you're on the outside now and you can't do anything to get back in the center you ever felt that way you ever felt marginalized you ever felt dishonored you ever felt disgraced? I know I have. And we're going to see here in God's word where, shame's come, where shame comes from and how God draws us out of the place of shame and into a place of honor. Go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. It says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And so, so let me give you a bit of context. Like uh, Genesis is, is written in a beautifully poetic fashion. M- many scholars think that Moses inspired by the holy spirit wrote the genesis account and if you read all of the verses in chapter one up to this point you're going to see this beautiful rhythm established by god there's this vast nothingness before he creates and that that nothingness it's not it's not sinful it's not wrong but if you and i were there pre-creation we couldn't survive so god takes that vast nothingness and he begins to create Day after day after day he creates, and then he says that it's good. And then we get here. We're about to see the crown jewel of his creation. And right off the bat in 26, he says, then God said, let us. It's the first time he said that. Up to this point, what God has said when he's created the whole of creation, dogs, cats for some reason, All the animals, the oceans, trees, and on and on and on. He said, let there be. It's impersonal. Let there be. And right here when he creates mankind, he says, let us. You know who he's consulting with? The Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It's like they form a little circle, because it's one God and three persons, and that should hurt your head a bit. You'll never figure that one out. One God, three persons. They come together and says, let us. Let us make man in our image and after our likeness. And so we see this this beautifully personal plurality of the Godhead out of the overflow of his honor, of his dignity, of his glory, of his majesty, of his radiance. He says, let us make man in our image. So there's two things that are happening, this, this picture of image. In the Latin, it said, you maybe heard the phrase imago dei. Anybody heard that phrase? Imago dei is image of God. And it's, it's two things. It's two parts. It's an imprint. So like, if you've ever been Printed at the, at the police station, no, nobody in here's done that, I'm sure, but maybe you've seen a movie where somebody was, was printed, that it, it's God's nature, God's character, his holiness, his radiance, his glory imprinted on mankind. So that's the first part. Not just an imprint, but also a reflection. So the imprint is vertical, from God to us. And then also encased in that image of God, it's reflected to the rest of creation. It's an unbelievable picture of what's going on here because God has not created anything else in creation with this type of imprint and this ability to reflect his glory, his majesty, and his honor. And he does this to create his crown jewel of creation up to this point. So it's similar to, I've got four kids. So all of my children have their mother and father's DNA imprinted on them. And and here's what's different about between God's imprinting on us and my imprinting on my kids. I had absolutely no say in it. There's some chromosomes me and my kids share, and and, and pre-conception, me and my wife Andrea didn't have a little meeting and say, you know which chromosomes I wanna pass along? What God did was, he imprinted in the Godhead those things that are most glorious and most honoring and most majestical about his nature and his character right onto the core of who you and I are. You know what the implications of this are? That you and I have more in common with the the poorest of poor. Go to New Delhi in India, the slums. We have more in common with those human beings than your pet at home. You know why? image of God because he's imprinted his glory his honor his dignity onto us and in that place vertically we find worth we find our honor we find our dignity and we reflect his radiance to the whole of creation this is why we were created and wrapped up in this is the beauty of how God intended it to be So take honor. God imprinted honor amongst the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He imprinted it from Himself to us to become image bearers to reflect that out into the world. And you could say the same for glory, His goodness, His dignity, His radiance, and on you could go. And the result of this, go to chapter 2 real quick, just flip a page over. Chapter 2, verse 25, here's the result. And the man and his wife were both naked and unashamed. <laughs> this, this word naked here, and we, we talked about this in the family series uh, several months ago. In fact, we started in Genesis. Um, but, but one of the things that we contended in that series was that this place of, of nakedness, there's no shame here. There's no vulnerability here. There's no compromised state. There's no feeling of, I need to get covered. There's no feeling of, I feel lacking. None of that is happening here. And the man and the woman, were both naked and unashamed. So there's no better place to be. Up to this point, there's no better place to be. God alone is glory. He is honor and he is praise. And the triune God himself made mankind in his image. So the dignity, the meaning, The honor of mankind comes through being image bearers and reflecting his glory to the whole of creation. So vertically, we receive our dignity and worth and honor from God out of the overflow of his glory and his majesty and his dignity. And then we reflect it to the world. So there's the vertical, and there's the horizontal, and it's beautiful. Sounds like a pretty good gig up to this point, does it not? And, 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 and because of sin, which is we're about to get into, none of us have experienced any of that. Yet in all of us, there's this desire to feel honored. Anybody ever have that feeling? You desire to be honored by your spouse? Anybody, anybody ever desired to feel wanted and worthwhile? You ever wanted that? Anybody ever had disgrace in their life and wanted to be redeemed. Where does that come from? Image of God. You you were created by God, hardwired to desire dignity. And you know who gives you dignity? God himself. You were desired, you desire in your heart to seek honor. Do you know who gives you honor? God himself from the Godhead. We are image bearers. And yet because of sin, we are left wanting. We are left craving we crave honor we crave glory we crave dignity we crave worth we crave value all because sin enters the world and we'll see that here now chapter 3 verse 1 it says this now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the lord god had made he said to the woman just quickly, quick quick context, um, this serpent who, who's Satan, he comes before Eve, and he takes part of what God says, and he twists it. And, and just on a side note, that's just how the demonic work. The demonic, they're duplicitous, okay? They'll, they'll give you a partial truth, but they'll spin it another way on the other side. He says just enough for Eve to question, and then notice, he doesn't go back there. Satan didn't go back to his original statement. He says just enough to leave her questioning, and then he moves on to the next thing, and he says, but the serpent said to the woman, verse four, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and if we had time, we could go back to Genesis chapter one, even into chapter two, and we could see that when God creates, he says that it's good. What makes creation good, or what makes anything good and right, is when God says that it's good. Who says that it's good in this scenario now? Now that the the serpent has a voice with her, she says, she sees that it was good for food, so she's deviating, she's coming out from underneath what God says, and she's determining her own steps. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her and ate. Then the eyes were both opened, and they knew they were naked. So Romans, and Paul Paul says in Romans 1, here's the picture, that they exchanged the glory of an immortal God for something else. So that glory that honor, that dignity that's extended from God to us as image bearers, it's exchanged for creation. Here's the picture. So instead of reflecting the glory and honor of God vertically and then out horizontally, they wanted the glory and honor for themselves. You know the problem with that is? We can't handle it. We can't house it. And I, I love sports. Um, I'm a big sports fan. I I wouldn't say that I, like, watch every game or catch every score, but when I watch certain sports, I enjoy watching sports, and over the years, I've had the opportunity to counsel several several different pro athletes over the years in a variety of different sports, and, and just had the opportunity to see God take those men and do profound works with the platform they were given. But the reason they were in counseling with me was because of a lot of brokenness and carnage in their life. So think of this for a second. These are men that get paid lots of money to play a game in front of lots of people. And people scream their name. People praise every move that they make and they're bestowed honor of themselves that they cannot house And the decisions they make from that place of the praise of man are horrific. And the dark places that those often go, and I'm not saying every pro athlete's a scumbag. It's not what I'm saying. But everyone that I've counseled couldn't handle the praise of man and made foolish, foolish choices through the rest of his life until God got a hold of him. We can't handle or house the glory and honor and dignity that's set from God to us. If it were up, to us to be able to fabricate it or make it, we would be left wanting. As image bearers, he extends it to us. So any honor my heart craves can only be satisfied in God. You see that? Any dignity that my heart desires can only be found in his affection for me. Any hope, any worth, those are the things that were imprinted on me from God himself. Do you see what was fractured here? That dignity, that honor, it's gone. It's gone. And it says right here, they were naked. Their eyes of both were opened and they were naked. That word naked is different from what we read in chapter two. And, and he's, going, he's going to mention the same word multiple times on top of itself throughout the first several verses of chapter three. And the picture of this nakedness is exposed it's exposed to the utmost degree, and here's two implications. They're guilty before a holy God. This is a judicial guilt. You know, here in the West, we love, we love the courtroom, do we not? Like we, we love the, the shows Law and Order. We love all the different shows about the courtroom. That's, that's how the West sees most of this. We, we see the judicial side of this. So I, I, I was speeding, I got caught, I broke the law, I'm guilty. Right? This is how we see things in the West. Do you know the rest of the world nearly? Everywhere but the West is an honor-shame culture. Talk to any missionary that's served overseas in an Eastern-type setting. They see it honor-shame. We see it as in the the civil, the judicial. So it's two things colliding. It's not one or the other, it's both. There's the guilt, and that's the, the judicial. It says, I messed up. I I, I broke the law, I messed up. That's what guilt says. So before a holy God, God said do this, don't do this. Adam and Eve fall into sin, they're guilty before a holy God. And they are marred as a result. It goes further though. The second component of this nakedness is shame. And this is positional. And this is where shame and honor cultures would have a better understanding of the implications of this. It's, it's, it says where guilt says, I messed up. Shame says, I am messed up. You ever had that nagging voice inside of you that just critiques everything you do? Anybody else got that? You're going to leave me alone. That's shame. That's shame. It says, I messed up. I am messed up. I screwed up. I am a screw up. So as sin enters the world and the imago day is fractured and the glory and honor and radiance and majesty that is shared between us and God and reflected from God through us to the rest of creation is horrifically fractured. And in that place before a holy God, we are guilty and we are marred. We are marred. It's both. So in the weeks to come, the implications of, of what we do here, because let's just be honest. like Nobody likes to feel compromised. A- anybody like a, a good dose of embarrassment? You do? I didn't think so. Anybody like feeling exposed? Nobody likes that. You know why? Because of right here. <laughs> when you feel exposed, when you feel compromised, you quickly cover. And I'm not going to get into the implications of what we do with shame. That's in the weeks to come. We cover, we hide, we blame, we try to cleanse. These are the things that we do to try to cover that nakedness. We're trying to cover the guilt. We're trying to cover the shame. In the weeks to come, we will dive into that and see that Christ and Christ alone covers our shame. Christ and Christ alone erases that shame. But in this place here, we see profound guilt and shame that they didn't just do what was wrong, they were wrong. You hear that? They didn't just do what was wrong, they were wrong. So let's just put that on us. We don't just do what's wrong, we are wrong. So that gnawing voice inside of you that would say you're less than, according to this that voice is right that that voice that would say you've fallen short that you're you're maybe garbage or you're scum of the earth whatever it is that gnawing nagging voice says to you apart from Christ Jesus according to Genesis 3 it's right and it's the guilt and shame that we deserve because of our sin and this this shame it's pervasive we're not just We're not just shameful because of what we've done. Anybody make any decisions that have brought shame on themselves? We won't won't ask for a show of hands. This is church, we don't need to be honest in church. Right? You have. Anybody had any horrifically shameful things done to them that you've never told anyone about, that you would love to forget? You have, some more than others. But the reality is, though, we are born into shame. We are born wrong. <laughs> we are born marred. And then we make decisions that heap more shame on us. And then things happen to us that heap more shame on us. You'll see here on the screen the fallout from shame. Here's the fallout the glory and honor and dignity that was bestowed on them, they exchanged. And they exchanged that, that beautiful honor and glory for the glory of self. And instead of receiving glory and honor, they received shame. Instead of glory and honor and dignity, they're utterly covered. And then as a result, they're all born into shame. So we are unclean, we're guilty, and we're marred. And then as a result, we do shameful things, and shameful things are done to us. So shame, in in essence, here's the picture of shame biblically. Shame is separation from God and the loss of honor and dignity. And you know, here's what's so hard about this. There's a loss there, and yet our hearts crave it. Our hearts crave it because we've been created by God for honor and dignity. And yet we can't find it because we can't make it ourselves. This is the picture being painted by Moses here in Genesis as sin enters the world. So it's the experience. Shame is the experience of being on the outside looking in. You can't do anything to get back in. I remember when I was in fourth grade, um, I had a group of friends um, we, and you know where I went to school is kind of a small town like, like where, where we are here in Muskoka and so you were in one school all the way through you, you didn't change schools and get moved into different classes you were pretty much in one class so you could set some friends in kindergarten there's a good chance when you graduate they're going to be your buds and so up to that point into fourth grade I had three buddies and we were tight we had sleepovers together everything we did was together and then one day For no reason that was ever communicated to me to this day, those three friends at recess after lunch began to run from me. I just thought it was a game. So I'm chasing them. And here's the sad part, it's shameful. Like I chased them for days. Like every day at recess, they would run and I would chase them till one day it became apparently clear, they don't want to play with me. Man, I can't tell you the shame that washed over me. I can still remember it. Like I felt alone. Like I was once in this tight circle with these dear friends and now I'm not. And, and, and they won't even tell me why but they won't even hang out with me. I remember that profoundly. You know what that is? It's shame. It's on the outside looking in and I can't do anything to get back in. Nothing. I'm marred and I don't know why and I never found out why (laughs) but this is the implications of shame in Genesis 3 a friend of mine let me just read a quote he said this and I really appreciate the way he said it in Genesis 3 Adam and Eve lost their honor and were cursed with pain the human family lost its honor things like rejection anybody experience rejection? unmet expectations deferred hope and falling short became the pervasive norm. As a result, shame turned them inward instead of outward and upward towards God's glory. And then we'll talk more about this in the weeks to come, but if you keep reading in Genesis three, what shame does, instead of dwelling vertically with the Lord out of the overflow of his honor and glory and dignity and reflecting that out to creation, shame goes inward. You know what's inward? You know what that is? It's a fancy word for pride. When we fail to reflect vertically, we have no choice but to go inward because of the sin nature that is is latched to us because of our guilt and because of the shame. But we see God's redemptive pursuit. We begin to see shadows of the gospel. Genesis 3, 9, you see in the garden, Adam and Eve are covering, they are hiding. Again, we'll talk about those in the weeks to come. The implications of covering our shame, and God's pursuing them. In 3.9, he says, where are you? Where are you? And, and I, I just think that may be one of the most profound verses in all of scripture, because God is not clueless clueless as to where they are. He is not left wanting, wondering, I wonder how deep into the, into the garden they are. He knows exactly where they are. It's a redemptive call. He's calling them out of what? Their shame. He's calling them out of their hiding. Where are you? And then later in 321, he makes garments of skin to clothe them. So this nakedness, this exposed, compromised, marred position, he puts skins of animals on them to cover them. And then later, In Leviticus you see God establish atonement for sin through the shed blood. That sin is so bad, something has to die. Our sin is so deplorable and God is so holy, something has to die. And then you see God give Moses the law. You've heard the Ten Commandments, right? God gives Moses the law. And here's the purpose of the law. so we got any Pharisees in here thinking that they can conquer the law and get into favor with the Lord to where one day they'll stand before the judge in that court when we say, you know what, you really did a good job in the law, so you didn't need the Jesus thing, so you, you killed it, come on in. That will never happen for anyone. That the law was never intended to produce righteousness for us. The law reveals the holiness of God. His nature, his character, the, the reason he says don't lie. is because God's not a liar, he's truth. The reason he says don't murder is because God's not murder. That the law was never intended to produce righteousness in us. The law was brought to reveal God's nature and character His holiness. And to show our deep need for a savior outside of ourself. Because if we're going to be honest. And again we're at church. And I, I pretend that we're not honest at church. <laughs> None of us have followed the ten commandments to the T. We have all fallen short. In fact, we could probably get two or three in, and every hand would be down. Anybody told a lie, then we all fell right away. And you know, if you fell one, you fell them all. And that means you're unclean, and you can't be reconciled with God as a result. That early and often the law reveals, I can't. I need a Savior outside of me. Do you see the shadows of redemption here? Like, early. Like, early. Sin and shame enter the world, and you begin to see shadows of redemption. God calls out to them. God clothes their nakedness. He gives them atonement through sacrifice and shed blood. He gives them the law. All of those are shadows of a deeper spiritual reality. And let me tell you what that spiritual reality is it's Jesus Christ, it's the good news of the gospel. They're all pointing to Him right here. It's pointing to our Savior. And this is where the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is so good. In the coming weeks we're gonna talk about the far-reaching implications of this good news. It's good news on the judicial front, and it's good news on the positional front. And I've kinda told you a little bit about it. I I read several several articles and I read part of a book um, from some missiologist. A missiologist is somebody who's, who's just understands cultures they've probably served overseas they've they've worked in a missions context and missiologists study different cultures and then they 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 take um they take the scriptures and they take the gospel and see how it's relevant for each and every culture because it actually is there's kind of two big paradigms there's the eastern and then there's the western we don't understand the eastern okay, uh, if, if you've ever been to China, if you've ever been anywhere in Asia, you've seen the honor-shame culture, you, you've seen how if you fall short, they will shame you, and you'll never get back into the good graces of whatever it is, that thing that, uh, that is, whatever the culture says, whatever the norm is, if you fall short, you're out, you're done, and, and they'll even mark you, so, so you ever read the book Scarlet Letter? You, you remember, remember that, 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 that? Back in the days of the pilgrims on the east coast? That, that was a picture of honor shame. She was an adulteress, so they put a red letter A on her. You're out, you're done. You are marred, you are scarred, outside looking in. Falling short. That's the eastern mindset. The western mindset, the western mindset's much more legality based. It's judicial. So, so picture a courtroom, so you've got the courtroom, and I've, I've used these analogies before, but you're standing before a judge, you've got a jury that's set against you, there's a prosecution that's set against you, um, and, and you have no lawyer. You are guilty, there's no way to even give your defense, and the goodness of the gospel says this, that you've broken the law, and God pardons you by pouring out the penalty on his son. That's the courtroom mindset that we as Westerners really identify with. We love the law, we love that picture. Let me, let me read something for you. Paul talks about this in Romans. It says this, Romans 3 says this, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Do you hear that? There is nothing you can do by your hands or your will that will put you into favor with God, with the sins you've committed. You were born into it. We've already established that in Genesis 3. And then there's no way to be righteous enough to satisfy what the law can't. For by the works of Of the law no human being will be justified in his sight since there the law comes not through knowledge of sin but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law although the law and the prophets bear witness to this you hear what he's saying there he's saying that anything that that God said in the Old Testament is pointing to Christ that's what he's saying that Jesus wasn't plan B He wasn't plan C. He wasn't like, oh gosh, the Ten Commandments aren't working to produce righteousness. We better kill my son. From the beginning, from the get-go, Jesus was the plan for our redemption. Jesus was the plan to cover our shame. Jesus was the plan to bring about right standing before a holy God. God has been manifested apart from the law although the law and the prophets bear witness to this the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace this is Christ's grace justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ this is good news right Man, you got to give me an amen This is good news. This is you before the judge. There's nothing you can do to defend yourself. You are guilty. And he says, pardoned, pardoned, and and not because God winks at sin, he's holy. His wrath was poured out on his son, (laughs) on the cross. And this is good news. But what happens, listen to me, what happens when you leave the courtroom And you know you did the dude. You know you did the deed. You know you were wrong. You know you murdered. You know you stole. Yes, you were pardoned and God's wrath was poured out. What happens when you leave the courtroom and still feel crummy? That's shame. What happens when you leave and still feel marred? This is the gospel gap that we have to pay attention to. And I see it all the time in counseling. I see it all the time in pastoral ministry. We love that we're pardoned from our sin. It's the judicial. But we leave still feeling like garbage. That's shame. And the gospel covers that too. Do you know that? That's the good news. That he pardons us. Our guilt, we're guilty. And he pardons my sin. Are you kidding me? But for a holy God, wrath poured out on Christ and I can leave the courtroom, and the Father's love meets me, that's positional. That seat of honor that he gave us as image bearers, he calls us loved ones in the scriptures. Do you know that? You know what he calls his children? Beloved, loved ones. He didn't just rectify my sin. He brought me into positional favor, and he calls me a son. This is the gospel. It covers our sin, and it covers our shame. When we reduce the gospel to only dealing with our guilt and not our shame, we draw in other hopes. And this is, this is the part I want us as a church, brothers, sisters, in the weeks ahead, we gotta be prayerful about this. Because we love us some, we love us some judicial freedom. We love that. Pardoned, I don't have to go to prison now. Thank you. We love that. But you know how many people I encounter that walk in crippling shame and don't even know it? And, and that the beauties and the riches and the depths of the gospel actually reach that too? That they are right before a holy God and, and, and they are bestowed positional grace when we reduce the gospel to only dealing with our guilt and not our shame, we draw in other hopes to bring dignity, honor, and worth to ourselves. And and like I said, we're going to talk about this, but nobody likes feeling compromised. Nobody likes feeling naked and exposed. And so when you feel that way, that's shame. When you feel that way, you draw other things in to cover it. Those things, contrary to Christ, do not give hope. They cannot. They can never bring dignity. They can never bring glory and, and, and the honor that's bestowed upon us from God as image-bearers. So when we draw false gospel ends, false gospels in to cover our shame, we never reach the depths and the riches and the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. First Peter 2:24 says this: He himself bore our sins in the body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. Jesus is the only man who lived a shame-free life. Think about that. He never sinned. He lived a shame-free life. And I want you to think about this a second because we think about him on the cross absorbing God's wrath because of our sins. But think about before the cross. They beat him naked. Is that not shameful? That's what he's saying. He bore our shame. Literally, he didn't have to. He bore our shame. He bore it all the way to the cross. It's not just judicial, it's positional. So to walk in the fullness of the gospel is to walk in what's afforded to us before a holy God that we are guilty and we've been given freedom. Freedom into a positional grace and love from a father. We can never comprehend in the gospel. Secures them both. So Christ absorbed God's wrath for our sin and he he declares us innocent. Christ bore our shame and we were given positional honor and love by the Father. And the scriptures would say in Galatians that Jesus became accursed to bring this to us. And then he places a ring on our finger. In a robe of honor. That's Luke 15 when the prodigal comes home. The father gives him the signet ring. And he puts, he puts a cloak of honor on him. You're not just pardoned man. I'm going to honor you. I'm going to bestow my honor and dignity on you. So, so this has profound implications for how we treat others. This has profound implications for how we see who we are with the Lord. Because the great accuser, you know what he's going to say about you? He's going to try to spew lies that are birth and shame about you that Jesus Christ has canceled out because of the gospel. And if you set under those lies, you become puny in the things of Christ. You become withered in the things of Christ. I'm going to share a story real quick just to kind of bring this home. Um, when I was 14, uh, and, and a lot of you probably have heard the story because I've referenced it in other sermons, but I'm going to kind of take a different angle with it. When I was 14, I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease. And that summer when I was in the hospital, I was pretty much in the, sum, in the hospital the whole summer. <clears throat> and I was wrestling because I had these hopes. I had these plans for my life. And I'm just getting into the high school age and so the kids my age you know everybody's pursuing baseball everybody's pursuing football and you're just starting to develop as a young man and so you you see in the culture what tends to bring honor and that's what I wanted where I'm from football's huge I mean it's massive so I Wanted to play football because that would bring some dignity. It might bring some honor and maybe even a girlfriend. And and those are the things that I thought would be important and make meaning of my life. I get sick on the front end of that whole desired pursuit in my mind. So my growth was stunted. That first year I was so weak I couldn't play any sports. And so all my friends passed me but well, they start getting significant relationships, and they start playing sports, and I'm, a, I'm on the sidelines, and I can't do anything about it, and that summer, this doctor comes into my room. He wasn't even my doctor, okay? He must have seen my chart on the outside, and, and probably in big letters it said Crohn's disease or autoimmune, who, who knows what it said, but he, he grabbed my, he grabbed my um, file, he walked into my room, and he's just kind of like thumbing through them. Not saying a word, just awkward, and I'm in there by myself. Don't know the guy. And he begins to read over. And he says this. He says, Crohn's, huh? It's going to be a really difficult life for you. A lot of pain, a lot of agony. He drops it on my bed and he walks out. Awesome bedside manner, by the way. (laughs) That began something in me. That haunted me for the next 20 years. Because in my mind, I began to measure myself against what I saw as honorable and dignified in our culture. And I couldn't have any part of it, because physically, I'm sick, I'm broken, and so this narrative in my mind, there was a narrative in my mind, and, and nobody ever said it to me, but this narrative was fueled by this shaming comment from the doctor, and the narrative said this, you're diseased, you're small you're unlovable, you're insignificant. That was the narrative. Do you hear the shame in that? And I'm a Christ follower at this point. So I begin to pursue life. I begin to pursue Bible college and pastoral ministry. And let me tell you how that voice of shame has played out in my life. When I get up to preach, there's this nagging voice that says, you don't got nothing to say. You're insignificant. Nobody's gonna listen to you. That's what that shame voice says to me. And over the years, I have seen how I will draw things in to try to cover that voice up. My marriage, when I, when I began to date my wife in my mind, yes, like if I had a wife, then it would take away this insecurity. Then, would it, then it would take away this deficiency. Then I would have the honor and dignity that my heart longs for. There's no gospel in any of that. And so that voice continued to haunt me till we get married, and early and often, my wife would let me down, so to speak, she would fall off that pedestal of of dignity that I had placed her on, she would fall off that pedestal of of honor, and I would feel dishonored, I would feel disgraced, and I'm like, in my mind, it was, you're supposed to honor me, I've put her in a place that only the the gospel of Jesus Christ can satisfy me, and by God's grace, early in marriage, I was sitting with my mentor, it's probably about probably about seven months into marriage. Been married 12 years. Seven months into marriage, I'm sitting with my mentor, and I happened to be in really bad health at the time. I was preparing to have surgery uh, because I was in a bad spot health-wise. And I was laying out my sorrows and my troubles to him. And in our marriage, the first several months of our marriage, they weren't terrible, but I continued in my heart to struggle with, with these implications of dignity and honor as I felt disrespected at different times. And my mentor said this to me, he said, you're ashamed. I said, what? I'm just, I just don't want to have surgery. I don't think you're hearing me. I just want to live a healthy life. I don't think you're hearing me. He's like, no, you're ashamed. Like ashamed of what? You're ashamed of being weak. It's like the spirit of God pulled open my chest and said, that's it, Lee. That's the shame. Because here's here's the reality. I am weak. I'm a human, first of all, so we're frail people. I am limited physically in a variety of ways. There are these things that hinder me, but do you know what Jesus says about those who will find the kingdom of heaven? Christ came for the sick, not the healthy, and the reality is we're all sick. It's the acknowledgement that I'm weak, and I need you, and in that moment, I realize that in my weakness, Christ is exalted. And it's like the gospel just washed over years and years of shame. Like it changed how I saw my wife. I didn't need honor from her anymore because I've got it. I have all the honor I need from God as an image bearer through Christ. I have all the dignity I could ever stand because of Christ through God, which then freed me up to love selflessly hear that and so brothers, sisters like moving forward if we want to grow as a church if we want to grow as individuals there is disgrace and dishonor in the lives of every person in this room that Christ through the good news wants to heal and cover and that's the good news so I have great hopes for us that these remnants of shame would be dissipated Let's pray. So Father, we we do see God that we are a marred people. We are marred. We have done wrong and we are wrong. And we Recognize now, and this is just the cry of each and every heart. This is where I want you to put your heart before the Lord. Shame inhibits us as worshipers. That image of God, that that beautiful position of honor and dignity that's bestowed on us and reflected to creation, when that's marred because of sin, it hinders our worship. Shame binds our ability to love and serve selflessly. We see people as a means to an end, not an opportunity to serve and bless. Shame chokes out our ability as a church to walk in the fullness and the power and the gospel of Jesus Christ. So God, in the coming weeks, would you give us eyes to see the shame and disgrace that hinders us in all of these areas? God, would you give us eyes to see what we draw in, to cover, to hide? For the sake of seeking dignity or honor from some created thing that can never bring it, teach us to submit our whole heart to you as we look to you, Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.